here at Bachelor Creek, we value community. And I just want to encourage you, if you are not in a group, now is the perfect time to get connected in a group. Proverbs 27, 17 says, for as iron sharpens iron, so one man, so one woman sharpens another. God has designed us. He has created us to live in community. That's how we grow. We grow in the context of relationships. And right now, we are encouraging you, if you are not in a group, to sign up for a group. You can do so in the Church Center app or going out into the lobby and getting connected today. Uh, my wife, Tara, and I, we are going to be in a group this fall, and we are looking forward to seeing what God is doing and going to do through it. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Every good book, every good TV series must come to an end. Today we come to the end of the book of Judges. And honestly, I'm not sure whether I should be sad or relieved because it has been a raw and challenging book. We're going to begin in Judges 17 today. And I just want to give you a warning. These are some of the most dark and gruesome chapters in all of the Bible. It's a lot like a Quentin Tarantino film, all darkness and no hope. To the parents today, if you have a young child with you, maybe a preteen or younger, this may be a good day to acquaint yourselves with the incredible kids programming we have here at Bachelor Creek. I'm not going to say anything risque, but these stories are disturbing, very much so. I have never in my life heard a sermon preached on these chapters. And maybe after today, you'll wish you hadn't either. But I believe they're important. They describe a state that I like to refer to as Christian atheism. These people believe in God, but practically speaking, as I'll show you, they live like atheists. We have a lot of people in our culture that would fit the same category. These stories may remind you of our time. Most of us, regardless of which side of the political aisle we come from, we're genuinely concerned with where our country is headed. It seems like each year, things get more turbulent than they did the year before. It seems much longer ago than this, but it was January 6th of this year that Americans stormed the U.S. Capitol building. We, we live in a day of, of incredible outrage. There's outrage over masks, outrage over vaccines. Afghanistan is in turmoil. Hurricane Ida ripped destruction throughout this country. We still see riots in so many of our major cities. A lot of Christians feel like the sky is falling morally. If I could summarize how a lot of Christians feel, it would be that life doesn't seem to have value anymore. Whether it's the, the endless barrage of mass shootings, something like George Floyd from last summer, or just the incessant violence we are sickened at what goes on behind the scenes of Planned Parenthood, and yet we're confused at the moral outrage that takes place over the mistreatment of exotic pets, but there's a seeming indifference to the treatment of little boys and girls in the womb. Judges 17 through 21 is going to describe a time you will find, I think, very similar to ours. And I hope it shows you that there is nothing new under the sun. But I also hope it gives you hope shows you where our hope lies. Chapter 17, Samson, the last judge, has died. It opens up with the story of a random man named Micah who hears his mom utter a curse on the person who stole her money. 
Well, it turns out he was the one that stole the money, and he believes in God enough to be scared of the curse, and so he goes to her and says, uh, Mom, I'm sorry, it was me. Here's the money. Please take back that curse. Well, the woman is so grateful that not only does she take back the curse, but she says in chapter 17, verse 3, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son, Micah, to make an image overlaid with silver. She says, I'm going to say thank you to God by making a statue of him. Now, notice she's not making the image of a false god. This is a statue of Jehovah, Israel's God. Verse 5, Micah had a shrine, and he installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or as the ESV says, everyone did right in his own eyes. There was no rule. Everyone became his own rule. First, I want you to notice that the Christian atheist redefines God rather than submits to him. What this woman did was in direct violation of the second commandment, that we make no images or likenesses of God. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment because there's a lot of believers who say, I get the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but what's the big deal about making an image, not being able to make something in the likeness of God? Here's why. An image cannot possibly capture the full range of God's glory. And so inevitably in your image, you highlight parts of his nature that appeal to you and you conceal other parts that don't. For example, you may magnify God's strength, but you obscure his compassion. Or you celebrate his grace while you ignore his justice and purity. And what you end up with is a distortion of God. Not God as he is, but as you want him to be, which is really not a real God at all. It's just a deified version of you. It's a rejection of God and a choice of yourself. And hand in hand with that will come a redefinition of morality. You see verse 6? In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So just as you redefine God, you redefine right and wrong according to your preferences. Now, in many ways, that's the primary sin of our culture, right? It's not that we completely reject Jesus. We just want him to be a certain way. Well, my Jesus is like this. I could never believe in a God who says this. The problem is that is a full-scale rejection of God. When you define God and you define morality as you prefer it to be, you're not submitting to God. You're really just worshiping your preferences, And I'm not just talking about the pundits on MSNBC doing this. People in churches just like this one do it when they decide, for example, that they're going to sleep together even though God's word clearly says that the sexual relationship is to be reserved for marriage. Some people even have the audacity to to speak in spiritual terms like, well, we prayed about this and, and we just had a peace about it. Like that has any relevance whatsoever. Just have the intellectual honesty to admit that what seems right in your eyes carries more weight than what God's Word says. Let me continue on with this story and show you the second characteristic of the Christian atheist. In verse 7, after Micah makes the statue and he puts it in his house, he meets a Levite who's traveling through town. 
Now, the Levites were the priestly class in Israel, and so Micah's like, oh, good, a Levite, this is perfect. You could be my priest for the statue of God. And the priest says, well, technically, you shouldn't really do that, but how much you paying? And Micah goes, a lot. And the priest says, well, I need to pray about this. Yep, looks like I want to do it. So, verse 13, Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since the Levite has become my priest. Here's number two. The Christian atheist uses God rather than worships him. Micah assumes two things here. A, that this God exists to serve him, and B, if Micah does the right things, the God, that God is obligated to bless him. The great substitute for true faith in God is this kind of religiosity, and it's built on those two premises. That God exists for you, and that if you do the right things, then God owes you. By contrast, true faith says, God, I exist for you, and you don't owe me anything. I owe you. Religion asks questions like, how can I get God to help me in my business? And when that doesn't happen, religion says, God, I did all the things that you wanted. I gave money here. I did this this many times at this place. I behaved. God, what happened? True faith says, God, what do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with my skills? And when you go through hard times, faith says, I still can't believe that I get to be saved. God, how can I glorify you in this? False religion seeks control of God. True faith surrenders to God. Religion seeks access to God to get him to do what you want. True faith gives God access to your heart so that he can tell you what he wants. So here's my question. Which kind of God are you seeking? You see, let me show you real quick what happens when you shrink God down to a size that you can control. In this next chapter, a group of Israelites show up at Micah's house, and they have more money than Micah does, so they persuade the Levite to come with them, and they steal Micah's statue. Micah comes after them and says, hey, you can't take my priest, and you can't take my statue. They say, what's the big deal? Why are y'all been out of shape? He says in chapter 18, verse 24, you took the gods I made, what else do I have? When you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you always live in fear of losing him. But when you have surrendered to the true God, you quit worrying about that because you know that he'll never lose you. When you try to control God, you live with anxiety. When you surrender to God, you live with peace. So again, what about you? Have you ever just surrendered to God? Or are you trying to control and manage him? These next stories show you what happens when God is absent. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now a Levite, this is a different one, this is a new story, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So already off to a bad start. Verse 2, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. So she goes after her to, he goes after her to try to convince her dad to make her come back with him, you know, since he purchased her fair and square. 
Well, to make a long story short, he prevails, and so he puts her on his donkey and starts the journey back home to where he lives. Chapter 19, verse 14, so they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square. Now, this is what you did in the days before Hampton Inn. You would just go and sit in the city square, and you would wait until someone invited you in. But no one took them in that night. Finally, an old guy shows up and says in verse 20, you are welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So they're settling in for the night when suddenly in verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Well, the old man and Levite, they're scared, and so they offer up their concubine and say, here, rape her instead. Verse 25, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. At daybreak, the woman went back into the house where her master was staying, fell down at the floor, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, Apparently with no thought of her whatsoever, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on her, his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all areas of Israel. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. And, and they say to the Levite, tell us how this awful thing happened. And the Levite explained the whole entire story to them, though he conveniently leaves out the part where he sent his concubine to get raped to save his own skin. Well, this provokes an outrage. Verse 11, so all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. And they amass an army of 400,000 soldiers to march up against the Benjamites. And they demand that the Benjamites surrender the men of the city who did this, but the Benjamites won't do it. So a fight breaks out. And at first, the armies of the Benjamites are winning. Verse 26, then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And he did. It was a rout. Verse 48, the men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. Only 600 Benjamites escape. And they go and they hide in some caves up in the mountains. Chapter 21, the Israelites, they know that these guys have escaped. They take a vow. They say, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. Well, a few months go by, tempers cool, and these 600 Benjamites, they come out from hiding. And they say, our wives and our daughters are all dead. We're a bunch of guys, so we have no wives to marry to have children. Well, now they're in a pickle. Because the Israelites have made this vow that no one can ever marry a Benjamite. But now their, their tempers have cooled down a little bit, and they don't want this tribe to go extinct. 
Verse 2, so the people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? As if it's God's fault, right? What are we going to do, God? Why did you let this happen? So they, not God, come up with a plan. Verse 8, they ask, when we were preparing to go to war against Benjamin, was there any region that didn't send anybody to fight? And they figure out that no one came from Jabesh-Gilead. Verse 10, so the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh-Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. And so they do that. They keep alive 400 girls to serve as wives. But it's not enough. They're still 200 short. Verse 20, so they instructed the Benjamites. Now, there's this tribe up in Shiloh where the women have this tradition where in the fall, all the women come out in the fields to do kind of this ritual dance, and none of the men go with them. So it's a perfect setup for a kidnapping. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, this is verse 21, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. And so they do that. And then... The book of Judges just ends. Chapter 21, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's the last verse. That's how the book ends. So what do we see? First, when God is absent, the weak are abused. When God is absent, the weak are abused. The inevitable result of casting off the rule of God is defining morality in a way that benefits the strong. What runs through these last chapters is a horrific callousness towards the weak. Israel is mercilessly oppressive towards weaker tribes and weaker groups, like Israelite women. There's one biblical scholar who says that you can evaluate Israel's relationship and judges with God by how they treat women. At the beginning, it was the evil Canaanites like Sisera who raped and oppressed Israel's women. Now Israel treats them horrifically. And what's worse, they, they seem oblivious to what they're doing. That they talk like they're right with God. That they act like they're doing the right thing. But I simply ask, where is the Levite rebuke for A, having a concubine, and B, sending her out as a peace offering to a group of men looking for a gang rape? Where is the concern for the women they've kidnapped to provide bride, to be brides for some of the men? Where is the concern in these chapters for the innocent that the Israelites killed? What you see is that when you take God out of the equation, the strong inevitably oppress the weak. The most profound achievement of the American Constitution was to ground our rights not in democracy, not in man's will, but in God's created order. Our founder said that we are created, we are endowed by our creator with what? Certain inalienable rights, which means that rights are not subject to the whims of majority. Benjamin Franklin said, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is the lamb having grounds before God 
on which to contest the vote. If Martin Luther King Jr. had only the will of the people to appeal to, he would have had no leg to stand on. But what did he do? He appealed to a higher law than democracy. He appealed to the law of God. See, when a society or a person dismisses God, the strong inevitably begin to oppress the weak. And so let's ask, who are the weak among us today? For many years in our country, it was people of different races. For a large part of our history, many of us white Americans were held to a different standard of justice than was the African American or the Native American. And even today, even though the laws themselves have been corrected, we who are in positions of strength ought to constantly make sure that justice is not skewed in our direction because that can happen very easily. We ought to empathize with those around us who have not enjoyed the same positions throughout history that we have. Here's another group, the fatherless. One in every three kids in the United States grow up in a single-parent home. In most cases, there's no dad. 80% of all single-parent households are headed by a single mother. That means 24 million American children will be raised without their father. What about foster kids? There are more than 32,000 foster kids in Indiana. Many of them bounce from one house to another, constantly feeling like nobody wants them or nobody loves them. And every year, hundreds of them age out of the system where 99% of them end up on the streets. Do they, do they not deserve the love of a parent? Are they not created in the image of God like our kids are? Are they invisible to us? Have we not felt their pain? What about the homeless? Again, in the state of Indiana, we have almost 20,000 homeless children in our school systems. That's an increase from 9,000 just a decade earlier. What about prisoners? I read a study recently talking about how one of the primary predictors of whether someone goes back into crime when they're released is whether or not they have relationships, healthy relationships with people on the outside. 40% of prisoners have no one come visit them a single time while they're in prison. No family, no friends, no one from church. What about the unborn? The revelation in recent years that Planned Parenthood traffics body parts of aborted babies ought to, make us a very, ought to make us ask a very uncomfortable question. What does it say about us as a society that we have a use for aborted human organs but not for the baby that provides them? Are children in the womb created in the image of God? If so, how can we be okay with a human being killed for our convenience? And if you say it's not really a human life, then what kind of life is it? Both logic and science prove that it is a life. In Indiana, there are 23 abortions every day. We need to be brokenhearted and righteously angry, and we ought to do something. What we can't do is be silent. If there is no God... We don't have to be worried about anybody else's pain but our own. But if there is a God, then we recognize that each and every person on this planet is created in the image of God and they are worthy of dignity, respect, and love. So as Christians, we ought to speak up for anyone in a position of weakness. 
Let me switch gears and talk to those of you in middle school and high school. Do you speak up for those who are picked on in the lunchroom? I'll tell you there are few times you are more like God than when you stand up for someone who's being oppressed. And there are few times that you anger God like when you participate in or you sit silently during the oppression or bullying of someone else. Lastly, for us as Christians, there are millions and millions of people without Jesus. Does that break our heart? They are headed for the worst kind of suffering, eternal suffering. Don't we have to be working for them? We often talk about them like they're a stat, like they're a number, but they're individuals. I know that you can't be involved in all of these ministries, but every Christian ought to give themselves away for the weak. It's a sign that you've met God. Second, when God is absent, we will despair. We will live with despair. As I mentioned, this book ends with a note of desperation. It tells all these stories, and then it just ends. Chapter 21, verse 25, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's so appealing here at the beginning I get to define God the way that I want him. He's my lucky rabbit's foot, and it ends with hell on earth. Well, that's where this story takes a turn. You see, the book of Judges does not exist by itself in the Bible. There is another book written in parallel with the last chapters of Judges. The book is called Ruth. Ironically enough, Ruth is a woman who's not even an Israelite, and she was a widow. A foreign widow was about as low on the Israelite totem pole as you could possibly get. But unlike the Jews, she trusts God in the face of impossible odds. Whereas Judges ends with despair, where there is no king and the land lived in darkness, the book of Ruth ends this way in Ruth chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, who had a son, who had a son, who had a son. Seven sons later, that son was named Jesus. See, these books, written in parallel, show you where the strength of Israel fails. They show us that God would save through one considered weak, like Ruth, an outcast. The king Israel didn't have and clearly needed would come not as one who was strong like Samson, who would force the people to obey, but as one who was weak like Ruth. He would be poor like Ruth and wander as an outcast without a home like Ruth and would change our hearts so that we wanted to obey. And his death would be a horrible, gruesome thing a distorted perversion of justice like we see here in the last chapters of Judges. You see, these chapters in Judges are dark and gruesome, but they are not the darkest chapters in the Bible. The most gruesome, darkest section in the Bible is the crucifixion of Jesus. The Roman historian Cicero says that one of Roman's goals in crucifixion was to create such a spectacle that none would dare rebel. They beat them until they were barely recognizable. Cicero said that it wasn't uncommon in the scourging to see a rib go flying off the frame. 
we are certain that Jesus was at least partially disemboweled. The prophet Isaiah says that he was beaten to the point where he didn't look like a man, that he was unrecognizable. Crucifixion happened in a public place, much like happening downtown on the square or in a mall. Because the cross was so painful, men would weep and vomit and urinate on themselves. All the while, religious leaders congratulated themselves on doing the work of God. Why? Why? He was enduring the darkness brought on by our sin. He was entering into Judges 17 through 21 for us. The price he paid for our sin had to be equal to the horrific nature of our sin. Why was the cross so bloody? Because the wickedness of our sin demanded that it be. But instead of sending out his bride and then cutting her up into pieces, he would give himself up to be cut up for us so that he could redeem us as his bride and make us spotless in his sight. Jesus' death not only pays the price for our sin, it transforms us from selfish, hateful people into graceful, loving people. You may remember a few years ago when a teenage white supremacist, Dylan Roof, uh, Roof shot and killed nine people at Emmanuel AMC, AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. You might remember that during his hearing, the families of the victims, one by one, stood up and looked at Dylan Roof right in the eye, and they said, you have taken something from us that we can never get back. But because Christ has forgiven us, we forgive you. What gives someone the power to do that? I can tell you this, it's not a general sense of morality. It's not the belief that that God just exists. It is the belief that God has made himself weak for us so that we might live. Maybe today you are living in your own Judges 17 through 21. Maybe it's not as gruesome, but it's different only by degree. Maybe you've redefined God. Maybe you've used him. Maybe you have abused others. But I want to tell you today that God's grace is greater. It can pardon and it can cleanse within. But you have to quit redefining God. You have to quit using God. And you have to surrender to God. Are you ready to do that? Let's pray. Father, as dark and as gruesome as these last chapters and judges are, they pale in comparison to how dark it was when Christ was crucified. God, you sent Jesus to die a horrific death for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. And God, I pray that we would surrender to you that we would accept your grace. No matter how we've tried to, to, to fit you into our own little box, the, no matter how we've tried to manage or control you, no matter how we've treated others, you still extend your grace. And God, we accept that. 
I pray that, that we would live lives of surrender. I pray that if there's anyone here today who is, who's never surrendered their life to you, say, I believe that you are the Christ, I believe that you are the Son of the living God. I pray that today they would do, that they would let go of control and give you the keys to their heart. Lord, I pray for those of us believers here today that we would use the strength that you've given us, you've, we would use the position that you've given us to be advocates for the weak among us. That we would stand up for the oppressed. That we'd, you, you would use us to bring a little bit of shalom into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.